Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 403 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab. Smeet. Skylab Mission Zero While the crews and controllers prepared for the three manned missions to Skylab, a plan was devised to simulate a full-length Skylab mission on the ground, a sort of trial run. In order to simulate actual Skylab atmospheric conditions during the mission, NASA chose to conduct the test in the Manned Space Center's Crew System Division's 20-foot diameter altitude chamber located in Building 7 at Houston. The name given for the mission was the Skylab Medical Experiment Altitude Test, or SMEET. The first part of the name came from the fact that testing the medical experiments would be a major focus of the simulation. And the altitude referred to the fact it was conducted at a lower atmospheric pressure, the same that would be used on Skylab. It made sense to NASA not to interrupt the actual Skylab flight crew's busy training schedule for full-length simulations. Therefore, they selected a surrogate crew to complete the full-duration dry run of a Skylab mission. Robert Crippen, Carol Bobco, and William Thornton were selected to participate in a more down-to-earth and ultimately more meaningful preparation for the Skylab missions. I'm sure you remember Crippen and Bobco were originally associated with the canceled mole program. This SMEET crew would test out various elements of the Skylab equipment and procedures in a series of trials culminating in a full-scale simulation that was set for 56 days. When this was planned, 56 days was the longest planned duration of the Skylab missions and the length for which the second and third missions were scheduled. In addition to qualifying of the medical experiments, 
Many of the other elements of the Skylab program were tested during the program. The crew was to eat a diet according to the guidelines that were planned for Skylab astronauts. Even the interpersonal relationships of the crew sealed in a chamber for almost two months, both with one another and with those they dealt with on the outside, would be a learning tool for the upcoming real Skylab missions. Crewman Thornton was particularly excited about the possibilities Smeet presented to do hands-on testing of the Skylab equipment. He had already volunteered his services to the Marshall Space Flight Center in 1967 to help with the design and resting of the Skylab equipment. He was determined that it should work on orbit and had expressed dissatisfaction with several of the designs. To Thornton, Smeet was an opportunity to complete development and to test the flight gear as only he could test it. His largest concerns going into the test were the urine collection and measuring system, the food system, and the bicycle ergometer. Surprisingly, it took the crew a year to perform the planning, engineering, training, and pre-flight to prepare for the 56 days spent inside the altitude chamber. The training for Smeet was an intensive endeavor in and of itself. For example, even though they would be safely on the ground the whole time, the Smeet crew went through the same medical training as the Skylab members. Crippen actually broke his hand during CPR training. The crew was training at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas. The Smeet crew members were taught CPR techniques with a resuscitation Annie training dummy. Crippen recalled, quote, Back in those days, they always had you whack the person on the chest before you started. So, I whacked the dummy. When I did, the trainers told me I needed to hit the patient much harder than that. And I did. And I broke my fifth metacarpal. So, don't have a heart attack around me. End quote. The Smeek crew also spent time before the chamber test participating in the engineering design for the simulation. They played an important role in determining how the facility would be configured for the test. Bill Thornton was a stickler for good engineering in the chamber itself. The fire detection and deluge system sprinklers for putting out fires were of particular concern to Bill, who had been at Brooks Air Force Base when a serious chamber fire had taken place. The deluge system was tested successfully, but he followed up by tracing the power system to its source, supposedly a bank of specially designed, long-life, highly reliable lead-acid batteries. But those batteries were corroded, and some had been replaced by ordinary automobile batteries. He complained, and the batteries were replaced with still more automobile batteries. So Thornton complained again, 
and the batteries were replaced with the correct ones. As I mentioned, the test took place in a cylindrical vacuum chamber, which had a 20-foot diameter and was 20 feet high, which allowed for it to be configured with a Skylab-ish two floors. For the full duration test, the pressure would be held at 5 pounds per square inch, which would replicate the atmosphere that would be present on Skylab, 5 psi with 70% of the atmosphere being oxygen. The chamber was modified with equipment to replicate the Skylab layout closely enough for a meaningful simulation, though it was not an exact copy. For example, bunks in Smeet had to be placed parallel to the floor rather than perpendicular as on Skylab. Of course, the chamber was outfitted with the medical experiments that were to be flown on Skylab, including the vestibular adaptation testing rotating chair, the lower body negative pressure device, the bicycle ergometer, and the body mass measurement device. The Smeet crew was to use the same toilet facilities as were on Skylab, and their waste output was to be measured as it would be on Skylab. There was a second deck on the simulator, and the first deck was divided up into compartments. There was one sleep compartment for Crippen and Bobco with two bunks and another compartment for Thornton. There was a head compartment and a compartment where all the medical experiments were set up. It was similar to the living deck on Skylab. The two bunk rooms were outside the main cylinder area in a rectangular extension that led to the main airlock. The waste management compartment was an area partitioned off on the first floor of the cylindrical area. The large open volume of the main area housed the medical experiment equipment as well as the Skylab wardroom, a food storage and preparation area with a table. The main room also featured a small access hatch through which items could be passed to or from the outside world. This small airlock was about the only compromise made in Smeet that was not available in space. The second level featured desk at which the three astronauts could work. Before the full-length 56-day run, the crew conducted shorter tests in the chamber to work out any problems. After a paper simulation in which the crew members went into the chamber and talked through a day's activities, two run-throughs of two and three days each were performed. As with the full-length rest, the shorter runs required the crew go through the process of preparing to enter the low-pressure environment in the chamber. The preparation involved a procedure called pre-breathing. The astronaut was required to breathe 100% oxygen for three hours in order to eliminate nitrogen from their system and thereby prevent the bends. Then the pressure was reduced from atmospheric, which is at sea level 14.7 psi, 
to 5 psi in the chamber. Just as the actual Skylab crews did, the Smeek crew was inked up with small tattoos on their bodies to mark where sensors went for the medical test in order to ensure the sensors were placed consistently and thus increase the accuracy of the results. As all the other crews did, the Smeet astronauts selected an official crew patch for their mission. The patch, reflective of the crew's plum assignment, depicts Snoopy, Charlie Brown's dog, with an aviator's cap, goggles, and scarf, and a rope tied around his neck. Their original idea was to use Snoopy and put a fish hook in his mouth, but Charles Schultz refused to draw Snoopy that way, but he did draw a noose around Snoopy's neck for the patch. Another part of the Smeet simulation that began before the crew actually entered the chamber for the 56-day test was the pre-mission diet. Just as the actual Skylab crews did, the Smeet astronauts ate beforehand a diet similar to what they would eat during the mission in order to establish some baseline information with which the metabolic data collected during the mission would be compared. According to Bobco, the pre-flight and post-flight diets the crew ate were not exactly the same as what they ate in the chamber during the test, but were carefully selected to have the same mineral count and nutritional value. The crew members had two refrigerators brought to their homes before the chamber simulation. One stocked with the pre-mission food that was all they were allowed to eat. The second was used for storage of waste output, which would be taken back to the Manned Space Center for analysis. As things worked out, the astronauts got plenty of opportunity to enjoy the pre-flight diet. The planned 21-day period during which they were supposed to eat lengthened to 28 days when the start date for the test slipped by a week. Finally, on July 26, 1972, just 10 months before the first Skylab crew would launch into space, the time came to enter the vacuum chamber. And so, the 56-day stay began, and the astronauts were faced with what seemed at the outset like one of the mission's biggest challenges, keeping occupied for 56 days. One of the main differences between Smeet and Skylab was the lack of much of the science package that would make up most of the actual work in orbit. While the Smeet crew conducted most of the Skylab biomedical experiments, they were obviously unable to conduct the astronomy experiments and Earth resource observations, which depended on Skylab's location in Earth orbit or the material science research and microgravity experimentation, which depended on its constant state of freefall. Thus, they were given the full duration of a Skylab mission without all of the Skylab activities 
that would fill that duration in orbit. In addition, they could not enjoy some of the free time activities of the orbital crews, such as viewing the Earth and playing around in weightlessness. However, despite not having those Skylab activities to fill their time, the Smeek crew managed to find ways to avoid becoming bored by their extended isolation. The Smeek crew did follow the communications protocol of only contacting the ground during acquisition of signal. They had a schedule for that. On the other hand, the crew had the ability to make phone calls to anywhere in the country as another way to pass the time. As would be the case during the orbital program, the Smeek crew took on some extra work to fill some of the time as well. Crippen set up regular debriefing sessions during the weekend to help organize the crew's efforts, just as would be the case on Skylab. Housekeeping also filled some of the crew's time. Crippen recalled, quote, They once told us that things coming out of there were stinking and we were very sensitive because it didn't smell bad to us. I can remember, especially after we got the complaint about things kind of smelling and they were coming out of there, we'd take Neutrogena soap and rub it down and scrub things around, so we worked hard at trying to keep the place clean. End quote. As it turned out, the pre-mission concern about staying occupied proved to be unfounded. Between their primary SMEAT task and the supplemental activities they had scheduled for themselves, the crew not only had no problems keeping occupied, but found their schedule so full that they sometimes had to skip some of the supplementary activities they had planned. Work days, six days a week, began at 7 a.m. and continued until 9 p.m. with breaks for meals. In addition to managing to keep occupied, the crew also maintained good relationships with one another, despite being confined together in a limited space for almost two months. Bob Coe said the crew didn't have any problems with that because they had worked together for a year and the crew dynamic had already been worked out. They each had their own little peculiarities, so they understood each other well and got along. Returning to the subject of food, despite the eventual boredness that set in by the end of the post-flight diet period, after enduring months of restricted choices, The astronaut said that the Skylab food provided during the 56-day chamber run was not bad at all. Bobco, who later went on to command space shuttle missions, said that the unique hardware specifications of Skylab were a boon to the program's menu options. Unlike later spacecraft, Skylab had facilities to store frozen food. And unlike previous NASA spacecraft and the space shuttle, Skylab did not use fuel cells for power generation. Therefore, Bobco preferred the Skylab food over that of the shuttle, mainly due to the ability to have frozen food like steaks and ice cream. 
Now, the crew was required to balance their intake of proteins and minerals every day. This made selection and consumption and everything else more complicated. That was the difficulty with the minerals and calories. For example, if a crewman wanted to have peanuts, that eliminated many other selections in order to keep the proteins and minerals balanced. Just like the real Skylab, the crew set up menus for six days and then cycled through those selections for the duration of the menu, eating the same meals every six days. Despite being designed to replicate the Skylab menu as closely as possible, the Smeet menu did feature one perk that the orbital version did not. Once in every six-day cycle, the Smeet astronauts were allowed to imbibe a serving of sherry. The original plan had been for the Skylab menus to include a wine selection in each rotation, and a tasting had even been held for the crews to select what they wanted to carry into orbit with them. Medical objections had been overcome, but serving wine on a government ship was too much of a break with precedent for the political sensitivities of 1972, and it was removed from the flight diet. However, by the time the decision was made to remove the sherry from the Skylab menus, the Smeet menus had already been made out, and it was too late to go back through the process of completely rebalancing the various nutritional factors that would have to be changed if the sherry were removed. A more significant disagreement over the menus, however, proved to be of great importance to the Skylab program. The intense scrutiny on diets was not just to make sure that the crew stayed healthy, it was also one of the major biomedical experiments. Since the crews would be setting new spaceflight duration records, scientists wanted to learn all they could about how the microgravity exposure affected their metabolisms. Their dietary intake would be closely monitored, as would their waste output and their body mass, in order to make sure there were no unknown issues that would be a limiting factor for future long-duration spaceflight. In order to facilitate the close scrutiny of the astronauts' intake, the decision had been made to standardize the intake for all Skylab and Smeet crew members so that all crew members would consume the same number of nutritional calories each day. Bill Thornton was significantly bigger and leaner than his crewmates, and he disagreed with the 2,000-calorie food and 800-calorie snack limit. So, during Smeet, he continued his rigorous exercise program and wound up losing 28 pounds over 30 days. Bill proved his point that larger people require more calories to maintain their weight. Therefore, his diet was changed to a 2,500-calorie diet, with more proteins added to his snack calories as well. Similarly, 
to the intake monitoring issues that had to be worked out, so too did the output monitoring. A similar problem occurred in planning the urine collection system, as had with the nutritional standard guidelines. The designers had taken a one-size-fits-all approach that, while wonderful in theory, proved to be less wonderful in practice. The urine system was Thornton's biggest hardware concern. It had to collect and measure 24 hours of output efficiently and reliably, with very small error in weightlessness. The contractor had designed a two-chamber bag separated by a hydrophilic membrane to transfer the urine into the measurement chamber under enough pressure to activate a complex mechanical displacement indicator. It failed as soon as urine was used to test it instead of water. Bobco described it as such, quote, The urine collection burst on us. They had gone, I guess, into hospitals and figured out what the urine output would be, and it was too low. So, two things happened, and one is that if you got up to take a leak at night, you may fill this thing up. So halfway through your evacuation, you had to cross your legs and you had to change the bag. The other thing that happened was that the bags occasionally became overfilled and burst. End quote. A centrifuge was designed whose centrifugal force would generate enough pressure to transfer urine into new filterless bags. But Thornton was skeptical. He complained hard to get the system into Smeet for test and was the only one of the three crewmen who used it. There were multiple failures. The bag broke seven times, usually near the end of a 24-hour cycle when it was nearly full. Thornton recalled, quote, I had only my dirty, discarded underwear and a very limited amount of water and soap to sop up a couple of liters of urine into discarded bags and clean up the floor. Then I had to thrust my big hands into a maze of machined parts with sharp edges to dry them lest they corrode and seize up. My hands looked like I had taken on a bobcat. End quote. Crippen and Bobco joined Thornton in telling management it wouldn't work. A meeting was scheduled, and the three of them collaborated in preparing a rather blunt demonstration of the seriousness of the problem. The result was a complete system redesign. In addition to urine, stool was also sent out to be measured and analyzed. According to Bo Bobco, quote, We didn't freeze-dry the feces. We didn't have the vacuum as was available in space. We put them in little cans and sent them out. We sent the urine out, but we did the sample first. I think it was 30 milliliters 
per day, end quote. In a similar vein, the crew noticed an unanticipated side effect of the lower atmospheric pressure in the altitude chamber. Crippen noted, quote, There was a lot of flatulence. We tried to think maybe it was the diet, but I think it was just strictly the 5 PSI. It was significant, end quote. Logic supports the 5 PSI theory. At that pressure inside of the Smeet chamber, any given mass of gas would have three times the volume that it would under sea level atmospheric pressure. Additionally, Skylab crew members confirmed that the same phenomena occurred during orbital operations as well. Bobco recalled, quote, We had a timer, and we were counting. I don't remember how many times it was in a day, but it was a significant number, end quote. The 5 PSI atmosphere had more mundane effects as well. The lower pressure reduced the transmission of sound so that during the first few days, the crew members frequently found themselves shouting and became hoarse as a result. On Skylab, of course, they had the intercom system to address that problem. They also found that they were unable to whistle in the lower pressure atmosphere and that sneezes were milder. But the most important part of SMEET was the work that the crew did in testing out the equipment and procedures designed for Skylab, making sure that everything would function as planned by the time the first crew arrived in orbit. While the problems the SMEET crew had with the urine collection system were inconvenient for them, to say the least, their inconvenience served a greater good the consequences of the urine collection problems would have been much greater had they first been discovered in the microgravity environment of Skylab. One of the most immediate tasks for the Smeek crew was to begin taking the roughly delineated guidelines that had been developed for the Skylab operations and turn them into the finely detailed procedures that would be needed for the astronauts in space. The effort to refine the checklist were an ongoing process for the Smeet crew, beginning long before the chamber test and continuing through the simulation. When the crew got the original checklist, much of it was too short and vague for use in spaceflight, so they really worked on that quite a bit. Working with the principal investigators for medical experiments in developing the procedures had an additional beneficial side effect. The opportunity to witness the Smeet crew performing the experiments gave the investigators some idea of what they could expect in working with the Skylab crews during orbital operations. As was the case with the urine collection system, the Smeet astronauts' use of the Skylab hardware revealed problems with equipment destined for the orbital workshop. Their discoveries meant that the problems could be addressed before the equipment was launched into orbit, where the type of flaws uncovered during Smeet would have been devastating for the program.
Bill Thornton's dedicated use of the wheelless bicycle ergometer, for example, did more than just reveal problems with the dietary guidelines imposed on the crew. It also contributed to breaking in and then fixing the bicycle. Thornton used the ergometer primarily to maintain his normal exercise level, but because he questioned its ruggedness and thought it had not been tested thoroughly, he wanted to put it to that test. It failed on him twice. Eventually, a different shaft and bearings were installed, and its use was limited in power. There were several other hardware redesigns required as a result of the Smeet test. First, in the lower body negative pressure device, a seal that was necessary for depressurizing the lower extremities developed a leak and had to be redesigned. In addition, the decision was made to carry a spare seal during the flight program. Second, The equipment used for measuring blood pressure was discovered to have been miscalibrated, causing it to produce inaccurately high results. Third, several problems were discovered in the metabolic analyzer unit. Some of the measurements it took were found to be substantially higher than they should have been, and the oxygen consumption measurement of the device was discovered to be significantly greater in the 5 PSI atmosphere in the chamber than at sea level pressure. The unit was redesigned to provide accurate and consistent data for Skylab. Fourth, the electrode cement used for the vector cardiogram test was found to cause skin irritation and action was taken to prevent the situation from recurring on Skylab. Fifth, Coagulation problems in samples were discovered to result from the blood sampling techniques used in SMEAT, so additional anticoagulants were added. Sixth, the centrifuge used for blood separation was found to be prone to excessive vibration and had to be redesigned prior to the flight program. Of course, not all the problems the crew experienced were the fault of the hardware. One of the less coveted tasks for the Smeek crew was wearing the electroencephalogram cap that monitored sleep levels. It turned out the salve or jelly applied to the head of the user caused their skin to break out in welts. The SMEAT experience proved to be invaluable to the Skylab orbital program, and the three men were proud of their contributions to the success of Skylab. Both Crippen and Bobco agreed that the trial run the SMEAT crew put the medical experiment equipment through on the ground was a key to how well things went when the equipment was used in orbit. And Thornton praised Richard Johnston, then Director of Life Sciences, for initiating a daily logging and review system for medical data, which resulted in good status monitoring during the flights, and eventually in a fine document capturing Skylab's medical achievements. Finally, though, the time came to bring the Smeet mission to a very successful close. Bobco recalled, quote, 
I can remember having some concerns that we weren't going to get all the results that we wanted to get. And it turned out, I think we did. End quote. Fortunately, these meat astronauts did eventually get their chance to move up from simulated space missions to the real thing. All of them flew on the space shuttle. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to thank you for listening to episode number 403 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab, Smeet, Skylab Mission Zero. Well, it's the Christmas season once again, and I would like to give a bonus award to my donors If you gave $100 or more this year and did not get a magnet already, email me and I will send you one. And we are running a little low in the standard magnet, so it may be the archive magnet since we have more of those. Also, if you gave $50 to $99 this year and you want a sticker, Just email me with your address and we will send one out. The deadline for this is December 31st, 2022. My email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Continuing with the announcements, our next episode should be released on or about December 15th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 221 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist, and you can follow me on Facebook, and also you can find me on Patreon.com slash SpaceRocketHistory, where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things. If you missed the live 400th episode show, you can still see the recorded version Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the YouTube link, and that should take you directly to our video. The link is on the right side of the page, third box down. If you're a new listener, I really want to encourage you to check this out because it will probably answer some of your questions about the podcast. So go ahead and click the link. Had a few afterthoughts as usual. As always... I apologize for my mispronunciations. Concerning this episode, I wanted to let you know that Crippen and Bobco were delighted to be selected for this Smeet mission. They were kind of feeling low, not, not getting to go on the mole and not being selected for an orbital mission for Skylab. 
So they were very happy to get the chance to contribute to the Skylab program. And Thornton, well, he was selected as a scientist astronaut and was always heavy into Skylab. So they were very happy to be there. It really wasn't such a consolation prize type of thing. They, they wanted to do this. And, of course, they all did eventually go to space in the shuttle. It was interesting to me that the Smeek crew went through the same medical training as the orbital crews did. I think Crippen was talking about the CPR training just a few years. He, he must have had that just a few years before I did because I actually used one of those Resusa Annies for my training as well. But I didn't break my hand. That whole issue Thornton had with the calorie intake kind of surprised me. I thought everyone would know that a larger body, which Thornton had, required more calories to maintain its weight. I think the case was the meal planners just wanted to use a one-size-fits-all method because it was easier on them to plan and calculate. I guess that could have worked if they were stricter on the weight requirements for their test subjects. But with body types varying uh, that much, you would have to compensate with the food. That would just seem normal to me. How could that work if a 207-pound guy is in with a 150-pound guy? I mean, doesn't make any sense. You know, I had not really thought about it before, but I guess a 5 PSI atmosphere is more conducive to flatulence. <laughs> Can you imagine those guys with a timer and counting how many times they flatulated during the day? Oh, mercy. I wonder if that was in the job description. Well, I am happy to report, as of today, everything is running pretty smooth on the Artemis test flight, which to me is fantastic news. And getting a look at those pictures it sent back, wow, that brought back some memories. And it was, that is so, so impressive. And it's just wonderful to be back to the moon. I know we haven't landed on it again yet, but boy, just being in the vicinity there, that seems like such an improvement. It really does, that low Earth orbit. Well, I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. We had a full house over here. All of us grateful we could spend another Thanksgiving together. Well, donations were way down over the past fortnight, sadly. But we are thankful for what we did receive. Oleg S. from Germany donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. And Phil D. from New Zealand donated at the Vostok level. So we had two donors. Our total Patreon donors are now at 243. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 363. Our goal was, as you know, if you've been listening to this part of the podcast, 500 for the year. To put that number in perspective, last year we had 444 donors. In 2020, 
we had 443. In 2019, it was our highest year. It had four, we had 487 donors. And in 2018, we had 447. The last time we were this low was 2017, five years ago. So, I would like to see, if we can at all possible, at least get to 400 donors for the end of the year. That would require 37 donors before the end of the year. Now, that is tough to reach. I know now that the moon missions have ended, it's been, uh, the, the podcast has gone down some, frankly, since the moon missions have ended. But Skylab will be launching soon. And I'm sure that will be exciting. So tell your friends, spread it around on Twitter if you can, or Facebook, and try to get them to tune in to the podcast. Now, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying it and you would like it to continue, please consider supporting it. You can go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and click the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Or, if you would like to donate by mail, which works fine with me, you can just email, email me at spacerockethistory at gmail.com and I will give you my post postal address. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. We had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I am so grateful for the time we had together. It is priceless. Now for our drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected... Matthew Moylecroft. Matthew Moylecroft, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 363 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were... NASA, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for episode 403. I'll try to have episode 404 posted on or before December 15th, 2022. So long for now.